Welcome to another episode of the Constitutional Futures podcast series from the Arts and Humanities and Social Sciences Faculty at Queen's University Belfast. We're exploring current constitutional conversations across these islands. I'm Professor Colin Harvey from the School of Law at Queen's. I'm delighted that Una Mullally joins us today. You're very welcome, Una. Thanks, Mel. Una is a writer from Dublin. She writes a weekly column for the Irish Times on society and politics. Her work has also appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, Granta and elsewhere. She is a co-host of the United Ireland podcast and co-founded the podcast Don't Stop Repealing and the Irish Times Women's Podcast. She's the author of an oral history on the marriage equality movement in Ireland, In the Name of Love, 2014, and edited the Repeal of the Eighth Anthology, 2018. She's also a screenwriter and poet, has co-founded multiple creative projects across festivals, club nights and other live events. She co-founded the Utopia Island Ireland project with Conor Habib and is currently an associate artist with This Is Pop Baby, an alumni of the European Young Leaders Programme and the online news association Women's Leadership Accelerator. Una is exceptionally well placed uh, to speak to us today. Una, you're very well known to many of our listeners, but I wonder, could you say something briefly by way of further introduction about your own work, activism, and how it relates to this current constitutional debate? Um, I suppose mostly about thinking about uh, change in Irish society um, and thinking about this era of you know, social change uh, that the South and North have been in over the past decade, uh, in particular with regards to issues that cross lines of identity um, and of ideologies and how that impulse for change in societies to create more egalitarian society, I suppose, um, links in with a discussion about nationhood and new states and things like that. So that's kind of a good bit of the soup I swim in. I, I definitely don't see myself um, as an activist, although I have, like many other people, participated in different aspects of social change uh, because that was my context, I guess. And like loads of people just used the the tools that were available to me at the time. Uh, in particular in relation to marriage equality and reproductive rights. So, yeah, all of those questions of identity and um, imagining better things, you know, uh, I suppose that sounds very basic, but yeah, it all it all is in there. That's great. Fascinating. Uh, you know, you, you'll, you'll have noticed the, noted the intensification of interest around the constitutional discussion on the island at the moment. It seems to be rarely a week goes by without a new initiative or comment piece or a poll. Just wonder what, why you think uh, this is happening? Why this intensification of interest? I think it's coming from loads of different uh, sectors of society. Obviously, the economic question has been um, really amplified because of the ramifications of Brexit. Um, the question of territory and borders and so on was given a different twist uh, with the outcome of Brexit, obviously. Um, and also, I think 
people's autonomy and their own vision for what their society should be and what other entities such as the European Union that they want to continue uh, to be part of and how that was um, essentially disregarded uh, in, in the North considering that a majority voted to remain in the European Union. So that definitely has added a new twist and, and that's not uh, an original thought uh, by any means. I think as well there has been, which is less tangible perhaps even more profound, a change within people, uh, you know, both North and South with regards to aspirations, challenges um, and desires for what kind of society they want to live in. That is, of course, a generational shift and it does also intersect with a new kind of patriotism, I would say, in the South, which and there's loads of cultural and social reasons for that. And we see the manifestation of that in the party political sphere with the um, huge popularity of, of Sinn Féin, particularly amongst, particularly amongst younger people, but absolutely amongst um, many other age demographics um, in, in the Republic. So there's, there's so much, there is so much going on uh, with it. Unfortunately, um, and we can talk about media narratives in a little bit, you know, there's a constant focus on what is tangible or what provides conflict within narratives around the discussion about a united Ireland or around constitutional discussions in general um, that seem to solely focus on kind of the accoutrements of that. Um, we see that in this kind of regressive conversation about symbols and, and, and flags and so on. Um, but I think fundamentally, there is so much up in the air uh, in in you know all different facets of society on the on the island, and and so much of that has an economic um, grounding, I suppose. Really, kind of how society was so so disruptive, disrupted, coming out of the crash and the austerity policies, and I, and I think that that era. And the scarring that that caused um, in terms of people's opportunities is is really what we're continuing to see, um, leaving you know kind of the more the more broader identities aside. You, you know, you've noticed that as well that the Good Friday Agreement and the references to the Good Friday Agreement in structuring and framing a lot of the debate. I suppose just interested in your thoughts on what you believe the references to the agreement mean in that context? You know, how widely understood they are and what are the implications for debates on, for example, the constitutional future? I think even before, you know, the, the, the Good Friday Agreement is, is, is such an, an interesting document and it's such an instructive document and it's a document um, that we're bound by, you know, and, and rightly so. Um, I think it's... <sighs> I think it's kind of naive to think that the Good Friday Agreement is people have even got got to a place where that is central in in the in the discussion right now. I think the reason that I say that is because there is a tremendous amount of naivety, ignorance, othering, ignoring, apathy, uh, confusion, and just general lack of understanding that is widespread. 
um, in the South about the North, um, about um, the issues, about identity, um, about history, even, even about recent history. And so that's a massive bit of um, very complicated, you know, widespread ignorance that needs to be tackled before we even start talking about how central the Good Friday Agreement is as a framework from which we can move. I think that, you know, one of the things that the Good Friday Agreement does is that, and and we know why why this is, that there is this kind of, these pockets of ambiguity within it. Um, and that's, we know the reasons that that happened, you know, it can be very useful to do that, to try and not necessarily be extraordinarily explicit about things um, for the purposes of actually you know, getting an agreement in, in the first place. But I think that one of what I'm re interested in when you read the Good Friday Agreement back now is how, even though it was such a progressive document, how there are aspects of it, and we all know the reasons for this, that are, are rooted very much in identity. You know, even when you go back to... Um, let's say the operation of assembly parts of, of it and um, I'm talking off the top of my head here now, but there was like this, um, the register of a designation of identity, you know, that that, that was the metric by which um, cross-community support in assembly votes, let's say, were measured. And I think one of the interesting things that has happened and it's the biggest area of growth, I suppose, in, in social change and how we can then create common ground is that, and this sounds maybe like a total paradox, but the less identity and the less politics in this broader societal discussion, the better. Because how everything is framed with regards to identity and those lines stops an awful lot of common ground progress that we could be making I know that that can sound very idealistic and maybe even like utopian or impossible, but I do find it interesting when you return to the document, obviously how central that is. And in some ways, the social evolution of people, um, particularly younger generations in the North, I'm obviously speaking as somebody who's from Dublin, so I'm not experiencing this firsthand, but moves beyond those um, binaries, I guess, and moves beyond how one's identity on either side of something, um, be that a national identity or religious identity or so on, uh, stymies, like it, it entrenches people um, and, and, and kind of stymies progress beyond that. And I think that the most interesting aspect of the, co the conversation as it moves on is what are people's needs and desires and their wants when those categorizations are taken away and until we actually root down and, and really dig down into that, uh, we are going to come up against the same um, challenges and barriers and full stops again and again and again. Now, I appreciate how that statement may seem very naive uh, and or maybe impossible, but that really is the fundamental for me and that's where the you know the the excitement i suppose for me in the in this in this conversation is about like how do we separate those things and and stop people's entire humanhood being limited by 
a particular set of beliefs or a prescribed set of beliefs or identities and so on and get somewhere else. Because until we get to that, um, we are going to be caught up in the the kind of the architecture of political debate of the 20th century. And um, while there can be inroads made, then it's not a language of opportunity, I don't think. That's great. In terms of your work on Irish Times and the role of the Irish Times in this conversation, it was notable that recently the Irish Times published a poll on attitudes towards a united Ireland. And the polling um, generated quite a significant debate while there was support clearly there for uh, a united Ireland. There was also there were also questions raised about how, how deep that support went. I just wondered about your own reflections on that and, uh, you know, related and other opinion poll evidence that's out there at the moment around this debate. Yeah, I think it again comes down to I, I'm not convinced that everybody knows what they're talking about um, or that, you know, uh, the writer Roisin Agnew used this term recently called um, meme meme deep. Like, is are these desires for, um, you know, really massive social projects, uh, do they have integrity? Are they romantic notions? Um are they separatist notions? And and so when those polls and stuff like that come out, you know, I think it is interesting to gauge public attitudes, but it's less uh, relevant when the broader discussion that needs to occur, part of which is around a massive bit of education uh, on for people in the South to really understand so much more about the North than they do, then we're really only kind of getting a little skim on the surface. Um, so, and, and also like a lot of that attitudinal polling, not just on, on this topic, but just in general, you know, how much of that is actually about contributing to a, a broader conversation that needs to happen? How much of it is about generating stories? How much of it is about generating reaction um so much like you know before before any uh, population becomes really educated on something the polls can just tell us what are the outcome of uh, a topic that people may not have necessarily really educated themselves on and interrogated um so that's what i kind of feel about that you know it's kind of like um all of the proprietary work that needs to go in f years before people even vote on something, let's say, of this magnitude hasn't occurred yet. Now, there are little bits of it occurring, uh, certainly for the first time in real terms in, in, in my lifetime, even things like this podcast and so on and, and different um, civil society groups coming to the fore to discuss this. But I wonder what how much that kind of polling is going to tell us when we're asking people a question about something that they may not actually know a tremendous amount about. So they're just thinking, would that be good? Would it be bad? Do I romantically connect to this idea? Um, you know, how much would it cost? You know, these kind of reductive things that, that kind of flatten the broader vision, I suppose. F following on from that, really, you highlighted a point about 
just gaps in knowledge as well, north-south. And I was struck really recently around the debate around Joe Brawley's comments and Bernadette Michalski's and, and just that sort of gulf that exists north-south. And just wondered your thoughts on, on that. You know, quite quite a sort of intense debate really about this, the attitudes really in the south to the north. Yeah, I mean, I I, I, I suppose that I... One of the things that I have found in the last few years around the discussion about um, unity or things of that nature is that in the media in the South, the, what is always centred, and I understand this, is how unionism as a, as a concept with people feels about uh, uh, Irish unity and the opposition to it and the how these positions, you know, are just entrenched and they won't move. And there seems to me to be far more discussion about that than there is about the other contextual pieces of the nationalist, let's say, experience in the North. And I find that really perplexing. You know, I don't think one should be, you know, centred over the other. But I think when Joe Brawley said that thing about how people in the South totally disregarded the experience and the suffering of people, of nationalists in the North and how nationalists, you know, felt abandoned and, and so on. Like, I find it hard to butt up against that really. You know, that, that sounds like a very authentic experience and I think that, um, I do think that people in the South, particularly journalists and commentators and stuff, get very high and mighty about, um, you know, giving their own lessons and point of view about how things can or cannot happen um, in the North. And I find that discourse perplexing because where are the voices of people who genuinely live that experience you know, today, um, because I, I, I just don't see enough people who actually are experiencing what other people are talking about um, in the Irish media in the South. I know that that's not a popular opinion amongst uh, my colleagues in journalism, and there have been some good um, forums where decent um, and genuine conversation has taken place beyond bun fights. I mean, I think primetime or Claire Byrne, maybe, I can't remember which one, they did a really interesting kind of special programme on United Ireland, which had a, a relative diversity of voices in it, and it was much more interesting than these kind of, um, the, the, these kind of, you know, someone who grew up in Dublin 4 or Dublin 6 or whatever, <laughs> pontificating, you know. And look, I pontificate too, but I just... Um, I don't know. I don't know what's behind that um, opposition to actually considering the lived experience and the 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 pain and difficulties that that people went through. You know, I, I think that there is massive, massive ignorance and apathy uh, in the south towards the north. You know, like there's plenty of people in Dublin who've never even been to Belfast. You know, even on a, even on a, a silly little level like that, like there's there's a disconnection there. There's massive ignorance. Um, there is really uh, often um, dismissive and disrespectful language used. And until P 
people both in, in all areas of society, in media and in wider civil society, actually admit their blind spots, their ignorances, their biases, then we're not going to get a, a proper conversation because people have to uh, people have to be willing to to um, expose themselves and, and ask questions and listen and learn. So I think that any kind of shouting down or shutting down of Northern voices on their experience is kind of ridiculous, you know? I suppose that takes us on to the question of, which has been a repetitive theme really in the discussion is around preparation and planning. You know, everybody really focuses on that component of it. But the, I wonder, do you sense still a nervousness, particularly among civil society uh, on the island, of entering this contested constitutional space? And you know, who who should be leading these discussions? I think that um, there has not yet been a real considered uh, shift to appreciating the the amount of discussions and and education and engagement that need to happen i think that they are happening in pockets now i think that the less political parties are involved in these discussions the better i think that you know civil society is obviously you know means a vast amount of things i think that when we look at where the greatest successes have been around social change um, on the island, you know, delib deliberative democracy mechanisms offer up a really, really interesting format for for the first part of the process um, in a structured way. So when you look at obviously the models of the constitutional convention and citizen assemblies and so on, those are really, really um, helpful mechanisms. When the constitutional convention was established, uh, one of the topics it was kind of discussing was this uh, constitutional issue around marriage. And I was actually quite critical of the Constitutional Convention because I saw it as a mechanism by which politicians who did not want to actually take a stand and didn't want to lead and didn't want the flack that came with raising what they viewed as thorny subjects could kick that stuff into this Constitutional Convention and then use it as a foil um, to say, well, you know, the Constitutional Convention told us to do this thing, so now we have to do it instead of taking a stand for themselves. But, you know, the outcome of that was that politicians, um, well, they didn't stay away from the Constitutional Convention because they were involved in it. But in the citizens, by the time the Citizens' Assembly came around, the politicians with all of their motivations, you know, number one being getting re-elected, had kind of removed themselves from the conversation. And those deliberative democracy formats function really, really well because first of all, they take the heat out of the conversation. They offer a format for a diverse uh, group of people to engage in a subject, often people who are not actually included in the subject. And what's rarely included in the subject around Irish unity are um, new, Im new immigrant voices, for example. But they take the heat out of it, but they also provide the media with, and you know, I suppose I'd be especially interested in this as a journalist, the, they provide the media with a an avenue uh, by which to report and comment on an issue through how the 
assembly or convention is functioning. So instead of getting this kind of barrage of weekly, you know, opinion pieces or, or whatever, you actually have uh, an opportunity to report on what is being said and who is saying it and how the issues are being teased out. And that reporting in turn functions as um, an educative mechanism for the broader population through the media. And that was very, very subtle, but really, really important during the Constitutional Convention and the Citizens' Assembly, uh, especially in relation to marriage equality and reproductive rights. So instead of having this kind of like, you know, divisive, free-for-all, entrenched, um, combative type of discussion, you actually got a much calmer, methodical one. Even if within that discussion, people were saying things that like, where, you know, some people might really disagree with or, or think are terrible, you know, in some instances, but it allowed for that to happen. And so that's why if we actually want to discuss, um, you know, socially, how could a new entity come into being, if that's the case, or what is a United Ireland actually, you know, because we can talk about and dream about and oppose different things, as concepts, but we don't actually know how they're going to show up in reality. Um, so, yeah, I, I just think that those those kind of, the, the, the more grounded and the more closer to the ground that this process is, as in the more buy-in from regular people, the more opportunity there is for change that is non-divisive. And we've seen that, particularly, um, particularly in in the south. I think with the repeal of the eighth movement, and and Alva Smith, one of the campaigners on that, often says that the greatest achievement of that movement was not getting a referendum over the line, is that it was done without dividing the country. And we need to look at how that was achieved, because if you take something that was said that was you know the third rail of Irish politics, and actually neutralised it to a point where people were given the space to listen, reflect, empathise, connect, understand and educate themselves, think about that and then bring those thoughts uh, back into um, their own discussions with different people and eventually to the ballot box. You know, that's a really, really, really good model because it when you talk about who should lead, everybody should lead. People should be empowered to use whatever tools that they have in their own communities, peer groups, workplaces, football clubs, whatever, to actually take up this issue, this discussion, because that's how you get uh, society changing in a way where people do not feel like things are put upon them or that they are being shoved out or that something is being imposed. So that, that kind of... Um, I suppose that, you know, deliberative democracy processes are, are a really good way of instigating that in a structured way. And beyond that structure, then we need to look at um, broader, you know, community spread and, and how social movements in this country have a tendency to be kind of, you know, non-hierarchical and regionalised and stuff like that. You know, that's what we need to be looking at. Everybody should be talking about this eventually in their own language um, and having conversations that aren't you know, theological or legalistic or 
um, sectarian or any of those things that we know will actually really, really limit our imagination. So you you would welcome then, there's a number of suggestions around, for example, a citizens' assembly on this. Would you welcome? Yeah, I mean, I think that there should be, you know, a year or two year long citizens assembly on every single issue that is of concern or relevance and also you know not just limiting it to to a citizens assembly but you know nationwide in every possible way um those periods of reflection are already occurring for many people which is why you know we're even having this discussion so it's how to um how to how to structure that i suppose in the in the 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 part where the political sphere and the government sphere intersects with the you know civil society sphere with with people it connects very strongly with what you've just said but it's notable an event recently uh, around preparing for a new ireland was the the phraseology used that many civic activists, uh, civil society actors are, in a sense, are entering this debate because of its transformative potential. In other words, they take the new the new bit of New Ireland very seriously indeed. And just with that in mind, um, you know, there's been discussion very, very quickly, actually moved to discussion around the potential for a new constitution for, you know, some of the values around equality, rights, climate, social justice to feature in that discussion. I just wonder your thoughts on that. Do you think this is a conversation with transformative potential? Oh, like 100%, you know, and I think it's, it's such, this sounds so past, but like it is such an opportunity you know, and so many countries are mired in division, are mired in regression, are mired in holding on to the past. And this conversation is about the future, you know, and, and as about the future in a way that isn't about you know, how terrified we are of the future, you know, with regards to the climate crisis and so on. And absolutely, you know, however this takes form, you would have to imagine that, of course, you know, there's going to be a new constitution. How does that look? You know, is there, you know, are there bills of rights? Are we, like, what are we looking at? And I, ju I just, I find that really exciting, you know, because... There are so many inequalities um, in our society and there are really bad practices, you know, particularly in Ireland over the past, um, in the Republic of Ireland over the past decade, um, when, you know, when you, when you look at the negative impact of, you know, the kind of disaster capitalist policies that were brought in after the, 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 the property crash and being able to imagine something different, whatever form that takes where people feel that there is potential an opportunity where there's a vision for people's future where fundamentally people are happy and fulfilled and I know that that can sound very you know making flower crowns in a field or something but like these are the things that we need to be honing in on and and just kind of you know, the way I, I feel about it is that 
the you when you're kind of forecasting social change or seeing where the the shift is occurring you tend not to look at the architecture of the past and the architecture of uh people or or figureheads who do not want to move you know the vanguard of social change is always in those who deviate from those constrictions and it's very clear that where that vanguard exists in the north is amongst people who are uh, decreasingly tied to um, the identities that we know are so dominant in the north. And I think that's also true in the south as well. When you look at, for example, you know, the fundamental, you know, bedrock of, of, uh, you know, the Republic society was this kind of theocratic tie to the Catholic Church, you know, and, and, and that, is, that is not gone because obviously we have a huge issue with our education system and control of hospitals and other articles in the Constitution and so on. But like massive things can change all the time. They just do. So it's about how in control can people feel about that change? Okay, how do you do that through participation and having their own needs and desires fulfilled? And that, you know, level of excitement, I think, is 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 massive. And it's also then very obvious that, you know, a lot of people may not want that change, you know, but opposition to change is rooted in fear. And if you can address fears, you get closer to having cohesive change amongst loads of loads and loads and loads of people, amongst millions of people. And, you know, I, I just think it's 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 exciting, you know, uh, and and it's a, a massive opportunity to remove these archaic kind of influences that have that often colour society in really destructive ways. And, you know, political parties are are an aspect of that, you know, they're rooted in this kind of do dogma, I suppose, dogma in their own policy, dogma in their own ideologies. I think the more we take that away and the more we listen to actually what people want and what they need and, and what they would like in their communities, what they want for their children, what prosperity looks for them, what belonging looks for them and what placemaking looks for them and how identities are important you know you can't just like toss culture and sense of self and legacy and history aside but I think the more we get into people's fundamental desires the more we'll be able to actually realize that there is so so much common ground and within that how culture identity um and root to place uh, is 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 cherished by everyone, you know, and and how that diversity actually becomes an asset um, and not something that is static or that kind of bogs down um, the progress of 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 a place. The, the Irish government is using the framing of shared island, and you'll know, you know that it established a shared island unit and a variety of initiatives around that. And I just wondered your own thoughts on the framework and what's been done there. Do you think that's a helpful way of thinking about relationships on the island now and in the future? I mean, 
yes, it is. You know, to talk about a shared place is helpful. Like, I'm not convinced by... How do I put this? I'm not convinced that a department or a unit um, within the architecture of um, the government in the Republic has the dynamism or creativity or maybe even desire to really, you know, press go on having the proper conversations and, and preparatory work that needs to occur around this. You know, the Shared Islands unit has a budget of 500 million euro in capital funding uh, up until 2025. It's a huge amount of money. <laughs> I'm sure lots of people may think that it would be uh, well used in uh, other areas. Um, but I I just, I'm not, I, I suppose I haven't seen anything jump out at me. Um, of course, they've been hosting these kind of dialogue things and forum things. And I think that like, I just, I, okay, so to be totally honest, I just don't think that people are going to gravitate towards something with this kind of feeling to it. Um, and that's why I think people themselves need to be empowered to use their own language, you know, their own ways of doing things. I, the people who are going to participate, I think, in a lot of the stuff that the Shared Island Fund is going to be doing are already people who have, you know, who massive buy-in, you know, or, or like super engaged on the issue. Um, are, are those the conversations that we want to be replicating or do we want to actually hear what people who've never even considered this feel? Um, so you do get the bias of the the bias of the pre-engaged with those things. Um, I also think that shared island is like, I mean, it's the conver the 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 language like bizarrely the language the Fianna Fáil have been using around this conversation is very very, you know, arm's length like won't really dig into it. Kind of using this opaque vague language that doesn't seem to be born out of a strategic ambiguity, but actually seems to be born out of a st strategic apathy. You know, to not, to kind of, to talk about it, but not talk about it. To address things, but not really address things. And bizarrely, you have a party like Fine Gael, probably prompted by the popularity of Sinn Féin, being very, being more explicit, actually, well, certainly in Leo Varadkar's case, um, and, and having all these political parties in 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 the south united on uh you know this this question this question of of irish unity um but a lot of that is political right because people finnegal finnfall and so on note the popularity of Sinn Féin they know what Sinn Féin's uh, number one policy is on their agenda and there is an attempt to basically you know, put up their hands and say, yeah, we think that too. I I just am convinced that, you know, the, the language and the mechanisms of the shared island unit will be a leader, let's say, in, in this conversation. And um, it would be great to see like a breakdown of how they intend to effectively spend half a billion euro, um, 
you know, for these kind of these collaborative projects. That's one thing we're going to be watching, I think, in the decade ahead as to how this all goes forward. But I suppose it links into you'll be delighted to hear my final final question in terms of the this podcast and totally unfair exercise and prediction. But a lot of people have been framing particularly this conversation, the constitutional discussion around the, the decade ahead as being particularly significant. And obviously, Brexit is looming large in all of this. So in terms of prediction, it's totally unfair, but but why not in terms of this podcast? If, if we were doing this in 2030 and if we were talking about this subject uh, in 2030, what do you think might have changed on the island given what we know now? I mean, potentially everything. You know, um, we're in, it's hard to see, you know, your context when you're in it. But when you take a step back, we're just in this era of, you know, crazy, sometimes unpredictable, sometimes very exciting, sometimes threatening change. Um, and, and this is also part of that. Uh, I mean, I know Bertie Hearn is a fan of saying that there should be like a border poll in um, 2028, you know, but I think that it's so, it's so strange. The things that could technically, you know, quote unquote, make this, you know, unity happen or move things forward have become overly emphasised because I think that, and, the, and, and that's part of like the media wanting to hang its hat on something tangible as well. So like you have like media splitting hairs about, you know, what year should a hypothetical, you know, poll or referendum take place. That's, you know, we're not, we're not, we're not there yet, you know, um, and I think that anything that creates an atmosphere within a campaigning setting where the argument, for want of a better term, is being had is really, really destructive. All of the understanding and engagement and education has to happen before then. And we see what happens when you, when you start to invent an argument, um, in a campaigning context, you know, with what happened with Brexit, which was, you know, a referendum, you know, the le legitimacy of of which is is questionable even before you get into the awful um, divisive debate that it stirred. So before we talk about those things, we have to really step up ourselves, you know, as people on this island and, and, and start talking about what what we want um, and not what we don't want, I think. Um, but where could we be in 2030? I mean, like, I mean, it's it, everything. I, I, I definitely believe that everything is going to change because everything is changing. I just, I'm not, I just don't know how that change is going to show up. Um, but I think that we could be in a, we could be, in a situation where uh, a Sinn Féin Taoiseach has been in power for, is, is about to seek re-election. <laughs> we could be not in that situation at all. Um, we could be in a situation where all these assemblies and, and, you know, processes have already occurred. But one thing that we do know is that we have to 
start or continue, you know, now really, because if that bit of, you know, calm public discourse and everybody listening and everybody talking to each other and, and everybody asking their valid questions and airing their concerns, if that doesn't happen, um, then you get into a, a, a space where division can occur. Um, and as we know, you know, that's the last thing that, that we need. So, yeah, I think that we, we've got a lot of work to do, but I think that that work starts with, with, with ourselves, you know, in, uh, and, um, creating alliances that are about much different things than symbols, um, or, or, or even identities. You know, I think we need to think, I think we need to go deeper and, and talk about what we want, what we need. Um, and, and that's where we're going to, that's where we're going to find the, the part that can change things. And, and that's not, you know, blindly idealistic because that is what has been happening, um, North and South over the past decade. You know, that's why we've had these, these moments of huge social change and referendums or laws passing or things like that, you know, they aren't the change. They just demonstrate the change. So I think that um, we're, we're going to have to begin to build that within our own communities so that when the time comes where things drop in, where that are more tangible, uh, we're, we're ready and, we, and, and we've created alliances and we know what we're talking about. That's something that, you know, people in the South really need to cop on to because as I say, you know, there's a lot of ignorance and apathy and othering and it's, and it's not good enough um, because we do share an island, you know, whether you want to call it a shared island or not, like we do. And um, we, we need to properly share it and we need to, you know, share, share its, its present as much as its future because there are so many alliances that can be built across struggles that have very little to do with identity, but do have an awful lot to do uh, with economic systems and with class. So that's where we need to start. Well, th thank you very much, Una. It's a fantastic way to end our discussion today. I want to thank you for taking the time to join the, the, the discussion and the podcast series. Really thoughtful reflections there and much to, to think about beyond this conversation, which is very much continuing. Just want to wish you all the very best in your ongoing work. And thank you again for joining us today. Thanks.